God ever going to show up? Is God ever going to show up? How many of you guys have asked that question? You've been in a mess, you've been in pain, you've, you've noticed something wrong with the world, and you've asked yourself, is God ever going to show up? You guys been there before? Yeah, me too. Wondering if God's going to show up, when's he going to show up, how's he going to fix this thing, this broken piece in my life, this broken piece in society, is God going to show up, is a question that I think many of us find ourselves asking frequently. And today, we're going to be stu- beginning a study in the book of Exodus that teases out this theme, this question, is God ever going to show up? And one of the things that we'll discover in this study of Exodus is this truth, that God does not share our timeline. That God does not share our timeline. The other thing that we'll discover in the book of Exodus is God does not share our faithlessness. So I'm glad that he doesn't share our faithlessness, but I'm often frustrated that he doesn't share our timeline. You guys with me on this one? In Exodus, you find God moving at God pace, which is ultimately for the good Of his people. And you'll find that the people, oftentimes wanting God to move quicker, wanting God to move differently, wanting God to do it their way right away, Burger King God, we find that they are, even when God acts, we find the people to be faithless. And so in Exodus, we find that God does not share our timeline, but he does also not share our faithlessness. Thanks be to God. And today we kick off this study in Exodus. One of the, one of the uh, reasons we call it Exodus is because it's the people of God exiting oppression under Egyptian rule. And we begin today Juneteenth. Juneteenth is an American holiday that commemorates June 19th, 1865, the date on which enslaved people in Galveston, Texas, finally received the news that they were free. This was two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. This was uh, months after the Senate and the House finally passed in 1865. It is the day that we reflect upon and commemorate and honor the good news of redemption, that they were free. And we'll find in Exodus a similar theme. That freedom sometimes comes, but we don't know it yet. As we enter into this study, I want to give you an invitation. I want to invite you to engage in Exodus intentionally, reflectively, and communally. Here's what I mean. I'm going to invite you to, during this study in Exodus, to be intentional about your engagement with this book, to let it work on you, to make an intentional decision to engage in this ancient holy text. And in doing so, I believe that you will find a more vibrant view of God, a more interesting understanding of yourself, and you may even become wise if you study it for the next hundred years. So intentional reflective, instead of trying to put all the pieces together all the time, which is kind of me, right, Um, focusing on the minor things, rather, I want to ask that you would simply let the text be as it is, and then reflect upon it. 
I, I'm certainly not trying to uh, ask you not to have a critical mind. I think we all need to have really critically thinking minds. In fact, that's kind of how my mind usually works. But there's also gifts waiting for us if we simply let the text be as it is and then reflect upon it. So kind of mull it around in your mind a little bit. So intentional, reflective, and then finally communal. Um, do you know how cults start? One person reading the Bible, thinking that they got it dialed in. Don't be like that. There is so much beauty and joy in hearing what my community has to say about the text. Ask it. This is one of the best questions that I, that I, to help me in my Bible study is when I'm with a group of misfits, people who are socioeconomically, ethnically, and uh, chronologically different than me, when we read the text together and I say, um, well, what are you seeing in this text? And then they see something that I didn't see. We have gifts to give each other when we engage in the scriptures communally as well. Uh, they're not to be, um, you know, it's not meant to be divisive, but sometimes we might just come to two different conclusions and that's okay. I would encourage you to reflect upon the different opinions that you've heard. Maybe even pray and think through those. So intentionally, reflectively, and communally. Uh, to help us do that, we've got a little, uh, who likes bookmarks? Yeah, I like a nice bookmark. So we, did you guys get some of these bookmarks on your way in? Yeah, you guys can have, uh, please take those. Um, and on the back of those are uh, Bible study questions. These are just kind of what we've found helpful uh, in some of the Bible studies we've done here, just to kind of prime the pump, so to speak, for you to engage in study. And uh, I want to encourage you, these are great questions to discuss together. In fact, your assignment for today is take somebody or some other uh, group of people from your church out to lunch today. Make sure you pay for it, God's grace. And uh, maybe just go through some of these questions, even thinking about like... Um, hey, what did you hear when we read through Exodus 1 together today? And just dialogue about it over lunch. That's one of the best ways to do uh, Bible study is with food. And you, you, you are rarely ever more like Christ than when you are hospitably engaging in Jesus talk around a meal. I just go read, go read the Gospels, right? Jesus rarely, if ever, ate alone. So let's just put that on our calendars. Okay, so... Uh, 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 Leon Cass, who wrote a brilliant commentary on Exodus, I highly recommend it. He says this, I love this thinking. He says, having dwelt at length with Exodus through many readings with diverse companions and under different life circumstances, I finish my study in a different place than where I began. How many of you want to receive the good gifts that God has for you through his word? To be at a different place than where you are today, yeah? I finished the book in a different place than where I began. I have lived with the book, and I've allowed it to work on me. Intentional, reflective, communal. And there's a lot of weird stuff in Exodus. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of cool stuff, too. And Exodus covers a variety. I mean, it's, it is such a book for today. Uh, Exodus covers and explores and teases out themes like nation building and, and uh, ethnocentricity and a fear of the outsider. It, it, it engages conversations around immigration and poverty and wealth and warfare and power and how, how kingdoms work and how people groups work. It engages themes like war and deliverance. Are these not themes for us today? So perhaps we'll study God's word together and find some wisdom centered around Jesus 
for how we can better live today. Uh, We're not going to cover every uh, topic that comes up in Exodus. Otherwise, these sermons would be longer than you want them to be. I'm glad to do it, but you don't want to do it, so we'll keep it. But we are doing a series of summer sessions. These are one-off studies where we take one topic and uh, we kind of do like a a 90-minute study on that one topic, what the scripture has to say about that topic. So we've actually got one coming up in a couple of days on Tuesday evening uh, over in the Student Center. We're going to be, and I invite you all to join us, uh, we're going to be doing a study on government and politics. Now, I know what you're thinking, yes. Like, I know that you're so excited, right? And, and, And here's the deal. I Listen, we know that conversations around government and politics, by and large, are uh, nasty, They're, they become toxic sometimes, people leave heated and angry and all that kind of stuff. And that, that may happen, but it's not designed to. Uh, these are designed to be Jesus-centered conversations where we're all kind of agreeing to practice the fruit of the Spirit with each other and really focus on Scripture and then talk about how that might be applicable for us today. We want to be shaped uh, by Jesus, not by our modern political structure, Right? So we'll look at Jesus first, and then we'll have some conversation as a bunch of misfits on how that might work out for us, all the while practicing the fruit of the Spirit. Because if we can't have a Jesus-centered conversation with brothers and sisters who are different, of different political persuasions than we are, then what are we even doing here? So uh, it'll be fun. Yeah? Yeah, you guys guys are going to have a blast. Okay, so uh, that's this Tuesday. Also, there's a bunch of other topics that we're going to be covering. I'd encourage you to go to our website, dsbc.church, and on the uh, the ministries uh, events tab, uh, you'll find our events, and you'll see the summer sessions. Uh, It'll be a lot of fun. Okay, so leading up to Exodus, the first book in the Bible is Genesis, and that's kind of like the first part of the story. And let me just give you a quick recap. In Genesis, God creates the heavens and the earth, and he puts humans in the center of this place called Eden where he's got a garden, and he says to the, to the man and woman, he says, be fruitful, multiply, uh, fill the earth, and subdue it. So be fruitful and... Now, he's, he's, he's not being uh, rhetorical, right? So you guys know what he's talking about, right? Like they're doing, like you gotta, gotta make more of you, right? Got it? Yeah, it's in the Bible. Okay, so be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And then you kind of skip ahead to this dude named Abraham. And Abraham, uh, God calls Abraham out of his home country and says, hey, out of you, I'm going to make a great nation. And through your people, through your nation, all the peoples or nations of the earth will be blessed. But the, the, the thing in Genesis is it, it keeps not happening, right? So the people are supposed to be fruitful and multiply, but there's all these hindrances in Abraham's story. But miraculously, Abraham uh, then has a son, Isaac, the son of promise, and then you have Jacob, and then Jacob has a bunch of kids, and you've got this real big problem in Jacob's family. Actually, there's a ton of problems in Jacob's family, but one of the problems is, is that they sell uh, Joseph, one of... Uh, one of Jacob's sons, into slavery. Joseph then, one of Jacob's sons, is taken as a slave to Egypt, right? He goes to Egypt. Okay, so, that, so Joseph's in Egypt, and then through this really cool and yet perplexing story, all the rest of Jacob's family, because of a famine, goes to Egypt because Joseph, again, you'll have to go back and read Genesis, Joseph goes from a slave to the second in command in Egypt, right, through a miracle, right? 
a series of miraculous events, right? So Joseph is second in command in Egypt, and through Joseph, through this uh, a season of abundance, he takes all this grain and stores it up so that when the famine hits, he's able to distribute the food. So the story goes like this, that Joseph is the one who has all the food in these storehouses. You guys got me so far? So when there's a severe famine, what do people want? They want food, right? They're desperate for food. They're willing to do anything. So they use, in in Genesis 47 and on, this is really fascinating, uh, all the people run out of money buying the grain. Still a ton of grain, still a bad famine. So they come to Joseph and they say, we will sell you our land. This is all of Egypt. We will sell you our land and we will sell you ourselves if you feed us. And that's exactly what happens. Through Joseph, all of Egypt becomes enslaved to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh owns all the property. And then, end scene. So we're picking up Exodus in this moment where we just got done with the first part of the story, where Jacob and his family are in Exodus. Oh, this is interesting, though. There's an interesting note. There's one group of people that's noted that are not selling themselves into slavery. Do you know who that group of people is? It's the Israelites. It's the family of Jacob. They actually, Joseph takes his family, puts them up in a land called Goshen, which is in Egypt. You don't have to remember where that is. And they begin to multiply. So all the people of Egypt, enslaved, no property. Who's got all the property? Pharaoh, right? Who's got all the power? Okay, who's in charge? Okay, so Pharaoh's got all the might, all the power, he's got all the land, but then there's this one group of people that he does not own, and it's the people of, it's Joseph's family, right? And that Pharaoh wanted to honor Joseph's family by giving them the property because they, Joseph made Pharaoh wealthy, right? Okay, dramatic tension builds. Okay, check this out, Exodus 1. Now, we're picking up, this is kind of, actually, Exodus does not start with these, it starts with the word and, because it's meant to be read like, um, you know, like Star Wars? Do you remember the ones, the good ones in the 70s and early 80s? Like you're meant to kind of watch them in sequence, but they're tethered together, right? So, so Exodus, and Genesis, and then, Exodus, you know, Genesis is like part one, Exodus is part two. These are the names of the sons of Israel, that's Jacob, who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each came with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. That's what you go to seminary for. The total number of Jacob's descendants was 70, big, small. Like, if they're going to be a big, great nation to bless all the nations of the earth, is 70 enough? No. Okay, so we're kind of having this dramatic tension. When are they going to become a great nation? Good question. Joseph was already in Egypt. Remember the story about Joseph being sold into slavery, going into Egypt, making Pharaoh great? Joseph and his brothers and all that generation eventually died. So now we're kind of fast-forwarding here. But the Israelites were, remember that command that God gave to the humans in the garden? What was it? Be fruitful and multiply. Notice the language. The Israelites were and multiplying. You guys got it? So they're fulfilling what God called us to do, okay? Okay. They multiplied and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. Another way to translate that is swarm, that the land was swarming with the Israelites. Now remember the economic status that Pharaoh had all the property except for the Israelites' property. And Pharaoh had command over all of the Egyptians except for this people, okay? Do you feel the dramatic tension building? A new king, 
who did not know about Joseph came into power in Egypt. Hmm. So he didn't know how these people came to be. He didn't know who made uh, Pharaoh's uh, throne so great. He didn't know. Now, this could be like a new king, like a son of an old king. It could actually be someone who came in and conquered and took over. Those are both two ways that kings change, right? Okay. A new king who did not know about Joseph came into power in Egypt. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. So if you're Pharaoh, what are you worried about? Come on. You're worried about an insurrection, right? Like you're worried about getting taken over. In fact, Pharaoh's going to tell you. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further, and when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So, so Pharaoh right now is worried about the outsiders taking over. Do you see it? Okay, so what does he say we should do? Let's deal Right? Let's deal shrewdly. Okay, now, okay, here's the deal. Watch this. What gave Pharaoh all of his power? Property and people, right? Workforce, labor. But now he's got to, he wants to keep his power. He wants to keep being wealthy, doesn't he? He wants to keep being wealthy, but he doesn't want his wealth to be taken. He doesn't want to get overthrown. He doesn't want his, his power to get removed from him. So he has to deal with them how? Truly, and here we get an exposition on how the kingdoms of this world are forced to work. Notice what Pharaoh does. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. Remember what Joseph had done just before in Genesis. Now it's like, okay, let's just equalize everything. We'll just make you slaves like everybody else. Okay, he oppressed them with forced labor. This language of oppress is like beat down, okay? They built Pithom and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. This is really interesting. Do you see what these now uh, Israelite slaves, do you know what they built? What did they build? They built grain storage facilities. What did Joseph build? Grain storage facilities, right? Do you see how this is like a, a, a mirror image of the Joseph story? This is crazy. I mean, the Bible's so cool. All right, watch this. So they end up, like, it's kind of like this bitter irony that this is what they're being forced to build. Okay, watch this. But the more they oppressed them, the more they did what? They multiplied and spread, spread, notice that, so now they're swarming out so that the Egyptians came to, they began to dread the Israelites. Now there's a principle here that, I, that I, I'd like for us just to, just to hone in on just for a moment. Notice, who were the two opposing forces here? What did God tell his people to do in the garden? And notice that the people are being obedient, right? And what does Pharaoh want them to do? Stop multiplying. You guys got it? Right? So who are the two opposing forces? God and God and Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh is in direct opposition to what God has called his people to do. You got it? He does, God wants them to multiply. What does Pharaoh want? Right? And when the king of this cosmos clash with the kingdoms of this world, oh my goodness, we might start asking the question, is God going to show up? Because the kings of this world are scary, right? They can do things like oppress, put into forced labor. So is God going to show up here? They worked the Israelites how? 
ruthlessly, made their lives bitter with difficult labor and brick and mortar and all kinds of field work, right? So you've got this really oppressive government, just its boot on the neck of these people. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, now this is interesting, we're, uh, the Bible was not written in English, so heads up. In fact, Exodus, the, the way uh, that we have it is it's in uh, ancient Hebrew. And in ancient Hebrew, this is a little bit hard to translate. We're not quite sure if it's the Hebrew, if it's like if it's the midwives who are Hebrews, or if it was the midwives to the Hebrews. So this also could be Egyptians who are serving as midwives for this community. It could be both of them could be equally translated, and that's just maybe something for us to meditate on, especially when what we're going to find next. <clears throat> the first whose name was Shifra. And the second, whose name was Pua. Now, notice, names in your Bible are super important. When people get named, you're supposed to, like, zoom in and look. And here, you have the first two people who are living in the narrative, and they are two midwives. You get their proper names. These are the first two heroes in Exodus. Well, before you get to Moses, you get Shipra and Pua. Notice, do we know Pharaoh's name? Nope, he is just an entity in the account. He's just a force. But here we get the name of two midwives. There's something subversive going on here. All right, let's keep going. When you help, this is, the, this is Pharaoh, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. Is this bad? Not only is this bad policy, this is maniacal. Like, this is absolute murderous chaos. Pharaoh is completely out of sorts. This is a completely insane thing to do. Not only because of the moral responsibility that leaders have to care for the people under their care, but also because that's his workforce. Remember that they're, to make, they're making him more powerful, and he's so afraid that he defaults to kill the outsiders. Okay? Kill them. If it's a daughter, she may live. He's, evidently, he's not afraid of that. And again, the sons could become an army, right? At least in that cultural moment, that's what he's thinking. The midwives, however, these two named heroes, feared God. Now that's interesting. How did they know about God? What does that mean to fear God in the narrative? It's really interesting, especially if they're Egyptians. And there's this running theme throughout uh, what we call, well, throughout your scriptures, where the outsiders and the foreigners often see God more clearly than the insiders. Like the Roman centurion who looks up at Jesus and said, surely this is the son of God. Or like Rahab who honors God and, and uh, harbors the spies. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. Did they disobey the law? Oh, you guys want to have fun? Okay. Oh, let's do this. Um, is this civil disobedience? Yeah, okay. Now what do we do? Right? So here's the rub, right? Like, and I'm not going to put all the pieces together for you. I'm just trying to do a little, just do a little bit of... Okay, just a little... Notice that the heroes obey God's law over the law of the kingdoms of this world. Do you see it? 
They, they commit crime. They straight up do it. They refuse to obey the king. Oh, it's going to get even more interesting. You ready for this? They let the boys live. Notice this. So the king of Egypt summoned the, wind, the midwives and asked them, why have you done this and let the boys live? Straight up question, right? They are on trial before the king of, the, uh, of Egypt. So it's interesting. If they're Hebrews, this takes on a flavor. If they're Egyptian midwives, that takes on a different flavor. The midwives said to Pharaoh, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. For they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. Is this the truth? There's nothing in the narrative to implicate or to, to imply that what they're doing is telling the truth. This seems to be outright deceit. Okay, so, so now I'm just going to, let's just meditate on that for the next five years. I'm not joking. Like, let's just live with Scripture. Let's, let's let it come to us as we receive it, and let's let the Spirit of God use Scripture just to shape our thinking, right? If you, if you guys right now are longing for me to connect the dots to some sort of, like, thing we're dealing with right now, we would fail to let the Scripture work on us. You would just be short-circuiting the system. You would actually, frankly, be borrowing my convictions, do you want to borrow my convictions? I keep changing them, so I don't know. It's like, you know, version 8.7 right now on Caleb Campbell's convictions, okay? So, so we're just going to let this wisdom come into us. We're going to receive it. Okay, here's another interesting thing, too. Oh, I love this. Um, okay. Are you guys familiar at all with, like, the ten plagues? You don't have, like, not to name them, but you know there's, like, plagues that God sends to free the people? You guys familiar? Okay. So um, the last plague is the death of the firstborn son. It's interesting. It's interesting. What did Pharaoh command? The death of what? Every son. In an act of justice, God sends the destroyer to take the life of not every son, but the firstborn son, an ancient act of grace, but also provides provision that any household, including Pharaoh's household, anyone who humbles themselves, takes the blood of the slain lamb and puts it over the doorpost, their child, their child would be spared, an act of grace. It's interesting that you get this mirror image of the king of the cosmos and the king of Egypt, that the king of Egypt demands uh, justice in a corrupt way as he sees it, but the king of the cosmos uh, not only demands perfect justice, but also is extremely merciful and gracious. Okay. So let's do a little, remember the two opposing forces here, Pharaoh and whom? At least in the story, it's God, okay? Uh, okay, so they feared God and they, they told a lie. So God was good to the midwives and the people... Okay, so, 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 so check this out. Even though the people are experiencing pain and anguish and slavery, notice that the king of this world, the king of Egypt, is pushing, trying to push against the king of the cosmos and his commands. But though it is slow and though it is painful, notice who's winning. Every time Pharaoh tries to push against the king of the cosmos, notice what God does. Through subversion okay, and provision, miraculous provision, 
they continue to, okay, so this is crazy. Pharaoh keeps trying to stop God. And though the uh, people of Israel are experiencing the fire and chaos of Pharaoh, the peace and provision of God is just chugging right along. Do you see it? It's just chugging right along. And we're asking the question, will God ever show up? Pharaoh then commanded all of his people, everybody, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. Notice, so this is by design. Notice this. Pharaoh tells who? Everybody. So it's now everybody's job to do infanticide. Uh, If it's a boy, if it's a Hebrew boy, what are you to do? Okay, watch this. Okay, watch this. Um, What we're going to discover in the next uh, few scenes in Exodus is one, that there is a, uh, that God is going to provide salvation through the waters. In fact, Moses will be placed in a miniature ark and enter into the flood waters. He will be a boy in the waters, which is exactly what Pharaoh commanded. But this boy will actually rise up and defeat Pharaoh. You see, God is slowly working, chugging along as the king of the cosmos. And though the kings of this world might rise up and try to force back the power of God, God just keeps slowly but miraculously through his peace and provision providing a way forward. And you're going to see that thread line throughout the book of Exodus. Notice, though, that we have not seen God show up in this text. You've seen references to God, like the two midwives, they said, it said that they fear God, but God has not yet spoken. In fact, God will not become an active agent until the end of the second chapter. So we're witnessing all of this chaos, and it seems like God is silent. Have you ever been there? Have you ever seen the chaos in the world and the pain and the evil? And wondered, is God ever going to show up? But just notice that in the quiet, subtle, consistent, peaceful, and provisional way that God is working to bring about his ultimate good ends. It's through these waters that Pharaoh demands the boys to be thrown in that his ultimate downfall will come. I believe that this is actually echoed by Jesus, God in the flesh, who is born under a maniacal dictator, an evil ruler named Herod, who demands the death of every firstborn son. Because Herod is afraid that Jesus will raise up this people and will overthrow him. But Jesus does not pick up a sword, rather he just keeps walking according to the kingdom of God and it leads him to a cross where in a complete, like, upside-down way, he gives his life as a sacrifice, the lamb who was slain. He gives his life for you and for me that when the angel of death passes over us, that there is resurrection life at the end. I, I think that Exodus is inviting us in to have a deeper Jesus-centered wisdom 
but it's also showing us a more profound view of who we are and who Jesus is. And so when we ask that question, is God ever going to show up? Like the Israelites wondering, how are you going to provide in this mess, God? We can ultimately fix our eyes on Jesus. For in Jesus, the final word of God has been spoken. In Jesus, in his death, burial, and resurrection, God shows up. And through his resurrection life, he invites us to trust in him, to rest in him, and to follow him 